Hey, welcome to a brand new episode of Capital Ideas. You found the podcast where members of the Majority Democratic Caucus in the Washington State House of Representatives sit down at the Capitol and talk about ideas. Ideas like working together for one Washington. Ideas like putting people first. In other words, good ideas. Today I'm talking with State Representative Amy Wallen of Kirkland in the heart of Washington's 48th Legislative District. You're about to find out who she is and what she's about. So without further ado, here's how our conversation went. Welcome to Capital Ideas, Representative Amy Wallen. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. You're a brand new legislator. This is the sixth week of the 15-week session. So I think the first thing I want to ask you is, who are you and how did you get here? Well, I am a stepmother, first of all, and a wife, so I have three stepkids. I'm also a guardian for my nephew, Josh. My sister passed away a couple of years ago, and I have my nephew, Josh, with us. We own a small business. It's a car dealership. We have My husband started as a car salesman, and I started as a cashier, and now we operate this business and have sort of a family at work. So that's part of why I'm in Olympia is to look after that family at work. You have a history of public service before this. I do. When we first came to Kirkland in 2005, um, we hosted a chamber event at the business. I was being treated for breast cancer at Evergreen Hospital. I introduced myself to the chamber. And at that event, someone said, oh, you have such a compelling story. We would love to have you represent us on the city council. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? It was. And I was brand new to Kirkland. So... You know, I wasn't really expected to win election because usually it's a long process. You have a great depth of experience in the community. I was very, very fortunate to tell my story to the city, and they chose me to be their representative. And once you were on the council, you then became the mayor of Kirkland. That's right. In our form of government in Kirkland, uh, the council members choose from amongst themselves. And Joan McBride was our previous mayor. She came to Olympia, and after that happened, then I was very privileged to be selected by my peers. It almost seems like being mayor of Kirkland is sort of a preparatory position for being a state representative (laughs) because I know you're at least the third that I know of. Deb Eddy, Larry Springer, Joan McBride. So we're up to four now. That's right. That's in recent history. And I'm in excellent company, by the way. Those are all fine people. All Democrats, I might add. I know this is a big question, but what are the core values that have driven you to the point that you are at now, not only as as a person, but also as a public servant? Well, I think that my life experience, I grew up in Australia, I had a broken home, we had violence in the home, you know, I have had a lot of experiences, lived in a different country, have, I think, a different perspective about what government can and should do for its people. So my core values are really around looking after the most vulnerable taking care of working families, making sure that a tax burden is fair, having compassion. Every person matters. Every person is essential. As Democrats, I think that we carry those values and we're always wanting to look after the most vulnerable among us. I know that listed on your website as one of your core values is creating complete communities. Yes. I find that phrase to be very interesting and I'd like you to expand on it a little bit. I think that that really comes from my experience in Kirkland, where we have uh, grown exponentially. It's a wonderful place to live. It's a safe place to live. 
We have amazing parks and schools. What we don't have is a, f a place for everyone to live. So a complete community in my mind is one where people who live in Kirkland can work in Kirkland and what people who uh, work in Kirkland can afford to live there. In my experience at work, many of my team members live a long way, and they, they are the families that I'm most worried about, right, because they don't have transit. They live far away. Their families are fragile because they're away from work for so long. They maybe have untreated substance abuse or mental illness issues. You know, we've got some, some families that need our support, and I, that's why I want to work on those kinds of issues to support our families. And if it's difficult for your employees to live in Kirkland, I suppose that for the service employees who work in Kirkland, the people who cook the food and provide other kinds of service level jobs, it's almost impossible. Absolutely. And that is should be unacceptable to all of us because a complete community has a home for everyone. We talk a lot about being welcoming and inclusive, and that really does mean making hard decisions about taking density, about creating compact, vibrant, walkable places where people can live, work, and play without having a car, without adding to transportation challenges, where we all exist together. I know that in the central part of Kirkland, there are a number of what I would assume are historic or at least old and very well-maintained homes. It's a very nice walkable area. Yeah, we're working a lot on that as a sort of the heritage aspect of our work, just to to preserve the heritage of Peter Kirk's original home is on that street and the art center is located there and it's kind of got a, a historic vibe that we want to protect. Let's switch gears completely here and talk about firearm violence. Mm -hmm. I know that this is this is something that you have a deep interest in. What caused that interest other than the fact that we all want to prevent violence? Well, I grew up in Australia, as I said, and we didn't have the kind of violence related to firearms that we experience in the United States. In fact, I spoke with a friend of mine from Australia and encouraged her to come visit me. And she said, my husband and I don't feel comfortable visiting the United States because we might be involved in some kind of violence episode if we went to the movies or went to a bar, or went to a restaurant. So that was very interesting to me. But it goes beyond that. I mean, the level of violence in our society related to firearms should be totally unacceptable to all of us. Not just mass shootings, but terrible numbers around suicide. And again, our untreated addicts, our untreated mentally ill people that need our help and support, our most vulnerable people, have easy access to firearms. And may I tell you another story, Dan? Please. A sales manager that I work with, his son, did his homework at our place every afternoon, just a great kid but also a 16-year-old kid, and they always don't make great decisions. He borrowed a gun from a family that lived nearby, and he knew it had one bullet in the chamber, but he didn't know that the bullet advanced every time you fired the gun. So he's playing with it and with two friends and ended up accidentally shooting one of the girls, another 16-year-old. I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that the people who left the gun not safely stored have some responsibility for this girl's death as well. I could talk a lot about gun violence. I, I just feel really strongly that we can, that we just need to make laws around what responsible firearm owners do anyway, right? They keep their guns safe. They lock them up. They report them if they're stolen. The more that we can do to regulate those kind of safe, responsible practices with firearms, the safer our society will be. 
And this doesn't at all involve grabbing guns or confiscating firearms or any of the bogus tropes that are out there about Democrats. No, that's absolutely true. I do think we should slow down the process of purchasing a weapon just because of those suicide numbers. If we can just have someone reach out for help before they reach for a weapon, I think that that would be a win for all of us. This is one of those situations like housing slash homelessness slash affordable housing, public transit, that is so interrelated with so many other things that it is almost impossible to talk about as one issue. You understand that. I know that's why the legislature has 25 committees down here. Let's jump to something else because we're not going to solve the violence problem just now. And that is composting nuisance. Oh, yes. This is not an issue I've ever thought about. I suppose that because you've introduced legislation surrounding this, it is an issue. It's not one that many people might think about. Yeah, this is an interesting issue, and it is very important to me. Because I come from that background of municipal leadership, and where you have growth and density, and then you have aspirational goals like composting, the smartest way to do that is in a regional facility, you may not have neighbors that love that facility. My bill simply says that um, we won't bring nuisance lawsuits against a compost facility unless it violates a city or county code. Our our problems shouldn't be solved in the courtroom. They should be solved with our local uh, city and county officials putting in the proper codes and then enforcing those codes. And people probably shouldn't move next door to a composting facility and then complain about the smell. Well, part of it is that these are existing neighbors, and what we want to do is bring the parties together to work out their issues because we all know we don't want composting being done in each individual community, and we certainly don't want compost going into the landfill. So how can we bring the parties together to work together to work things out? And how's that going? I think it might go. I'm hopeful that it will. It's a small family business. I think that they've shown that they are invested in the community and want to solve problems and work with with the neighbors. And I think that, you know, we should encourage that work. I just did a podcast with Representative Larry Springer, one of your neighbors. It was about his business roundtable. And I think that probably a lot of people might be surprised that Democrats care about business because so many false stories are out there concerning Democrats and business. It's a pleasure to have someone in here who is a business owner and who works with businesses to try to make their lives better as well as the people surrounding them. Well, in our business, you know, it's not just an entity out there that has no identity. It's the 110 families that I work with and who go home and support their families. I mean, that our business doesn't work without our team. Our team is our family and it is our business. And it is the community. That's, Absolutely. It's not just a small group of people. That's right. That ripples out everywhere. Anyone who thinks about the office they work in or the factory that they work in knows that that the business is them. And where they spend their money is another business. There you go. What else? I would love to see us have addiction services on demand. You've heard me mention that a couple of times. It would be my dream scenario that we had, if someone was ready to go to treatment, that we, first of all, that we destigmatize addiction. It's a mental illness. We need help. You know, we need kindness, compassion. We need to call it out as a problem in our society. And then we need to provide services. So if I'm ready to go to treatment, I can walk in and I can do 30 days inpatient treatment. And this is the piece I think we're missing. 
because there are ways to cobble that together, but we've got to take care of the family. So many addicted people have to work every day and they can't leave their family for 30 days, let alone, you know, their addiction. So they need to be able to go to treatment and they need their family to have their rent and their food paid for so the family can support their loved one that needs them so much. A lot of people out there are going to say, well, that's just coddling people who have made poor decisions and that's not our responsibility. And they would say that, in my opinion, without realizing that that is counter to their own best interests. I think almost all of us, if we think about our lives, know someone that has had some kind of substance use disorder. For me, it was my father and my brother. And almost all of us have that uncle or that aunt or that cousin or that mother and so that's where our compassion and our thoughts need to go around those people and also the science that says this is a mental illness and we need to treat these people just as if they had a physical illness. I've kept you longer than I had promised. <laughs> I appreciate you carving out a few minutes for this. I'm going to want to catch up with you before our 15-week session is over with and get a sort of rearview mirror view now of your first session. Right now, I know that you've got your feet wet, but you're still figuring things out. After one intense session, I think you will have figured out even more things, and it will be a different kind of interesting conversation. So thank you, Amy Wallen, for spending a few minutes with Capital Ideas. Thank you so much, Dan. It's a privilege to be here. It really is. Working in the people's house. Working in the people's house. I like that. And if you did too, why not subscribe to Capital Ideas on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you go when you're looking for a podcast that's worth listening to. This is your state government, and what goes on here matters. The more you know about how it works, the better it can work for you and for everyone. I'm Dan Frizzell for the Washington State House Democrats, putting people first since 1889. Thanks for listening.